Amen. Well, welcome back, everybody, after a summer break. We are continuing our study of Paul's epistle to the Romans. If you're joining us for the first time, we're delighted to have you with us. Welcome. Again, I encourage you to bring your Bibles. This is a, um, a Bible study, so that's sort of required uh, when you come. It does not matter which version of the Scriptures you may be using at this particular time. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Other people may be reading from the New International Version or the King James Version or something like that. All of those versions are perfectly fine, um, but I will be reading from the English Standard Version. So the, the translation may be slightly different, but oftentimes the different translations throw light on the meaning of a passage, so it's perfectly fine to have a different translation. Uh, you'll see a QR code up there on the screen. From time to time it will be necessary to give you notice that we won't be having class. It may be due to the weather or an illness or something that has happened at the office or who knows. Um, hopefully those times will be rare, but uh, we want to be able to inform you in a timely manner. And so if you take your phones out, if you don't know how to use a QR code, all you have to do is take your phone out and turn it to camera mode. And if you just put it up there, placing it like you're taking a picture of the screen, you'll see a little website that will pop up. You tap that, and what will happen is you will be able to fill out the sheet, and then we'll have all of your information. And having all, you can also just take a picture of that and then do it later. Um, then we'll have all of your information, and we can go ahead and notify you if there are any changes to class. So I'll give you a minute to do that. While you're doing that, um, turn to Romans chapter 9, which is where we are going to begin today, in Romans chapter 9. And let's just go ahead and read through the first four verses of Romans chapter 9, and then we're going to come back and do a bit of a review. So Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 1, Paul writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. For they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You know, one of the advantages um, to studying a letter the way we are doing it is that you really have the opportunity, when we do this over the course of months, even years, you have the opportunity to really dive deep. I mean, Brian McGreevy has been teaching C.S. Lewis here at St. Philip's now for, uh, I don't know, since, you know, Moses was a kid. And um, he's done that because there's a great deal to learn from C.S. Lewis. But when we study the writings of the Apostle Paul, that is even more so. People have spent their entire lifetimes studying Paul, trying to understand Paul, and discovering that there is always more to learn from the Apostle Paul. But one of the disadvantages of diving deep and working through a letter like this over the course of a long period of time is that we sometimes forget the fact that this was written as a letter uh, to a specific group of people. And they would have studied it 
intently. They would have studied it perhaps over the course of months, years, but they probably sat down and read it in one sitting or had it read to them. And that means that they would have been able to catch the flow of Paul's thinking and Paul's argument. And sometimes when we're taking it apart like this, you forget the flow of the argument. I mean, we've just taken a break for three months and we're coming back. And Paul is starting here at, the, at Romans chapter 9. We're going to be talking about big, big themes, big doctrines here, the doctrine of election, predestination, and all of that. And you sometimes treat it in isolation, forgetting that it is actually the continuation of what Paul had been saying in the previous eight chapters. So what I want to do, and we'll do this briefly, is just sort of remind you of what Paul has been saying so far in the first eight chapters, so that as we step into Romans chapters 9 through 11, we understand what has gone before. We understand the flow of Paul's thought and his argument in this epistle. So for those of you who are joining us for the first time and you say, well, I haven't been here for the first eight chapters, I'm going to go ahead and sum it up for you in about 15 minutes while the rest of these people have been going through this for two and a half years. So you've got somewhat of an advantage. Romans chapters 1 through 4, and if you were here for the uh, midweek service last night, I did a little bit of this summation because I was preaching last night on Romans chapter 12. But in Romans chapters 1 through 4, what Paul is basically talking about is the plight of humanity, the human condition. And it can be aptly summed up by the words rebellion, suppression, war, and judgment. That, that's what Paul has been talking about in those first four chapters of Romans. He is saying that mankind has rebelled against God. God has made himself known. You understand that the essence of Christianity is a relationship. I, I always have to emphasize this to people because many people think that Christianity is a religion. And it really isn't a religion. A religion is a system of beliefs and standards, and certainly Christianity has all of those things. But at its heart, Christianity is not about rules and regulations. At its heart, Christianity is about a person. It's about Jesus Christ. Now, you can take Abraham or Moses out of Judaism, and you'll still have Judaism. You'll still have the laws and the covenants and so forth. You can take Buddha out of Buddhism, and you'll still have the precepts of the religion. But if you take Jesus Christ out of Christianity, the whole thing falls apart. Because it's not just about what Jesus taught or what Jesus said. It's more about what Jesus did on our behalf. And it's about coming into a personal relationship with him. So Christianity is less about religion and it's more about relationship. And that is what God wants to have with us. God has made himself known, Paul says. He has revealed himself so that you and I can have a relationship with him. But in that first chapter of Romans, Paul says the problem is that mankind has suppressed the truth about God. It's not as though we're ignorant, because God has made himself known in the things that have been made. Theologians refer to this as general revelation. God has revealed himself in the creation. Paul says 
You're without excuse if you fail to believe in God. He says, just take a look at the world around us, the order in the universe, the magnificence of the universe. God's signature is written across everything that has been made. He said, but men have suppressed the truth. They know the truth about God, they just don't want to believe it because they would like to be gods themselves. That's the real sin of Eden. It wasn't that the man or the woman ate of a fruit of the tree. They ate of the fruit of the tree. Why? Because Satan said, you will be like God. And that's really the root of all sin, if you think about it. The root of all sin is the desire to be in charge, to be in control, to be the master of your own fate, the captain of your own destiny, to be answerable to no one. And the problem is that God takes seriously the business of being God, and he is not about to cede his position or his throne to anyone. So Paul says that we have suppressed the truth about God, and the result of suppressing the truth about God is that eventually God says the worst thing that God can ever say to a person. Have it your way. You know, that's really what we want. We, we want to do it our own way. That's what we want to do. As I said, we want to be the masters of our own fate, captains of our own destiny. Don't tell me what to do. Well, eventually, God gives us exactly what we want, and it turns out to be the worst possible thing imaginable. God basically says, do it your own way. Turn to Romans chapter 1 for just a minute, just to be reminded. Beginning in verse 18, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Again, they're not ignorant of the truth. They have suppressed it. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, when you stop believing in God, it's not as though you stop believing in anything. G.K. Chesterton said, the problem is when you stop believing in God, you, stop belie you start believing in everything. I think that's the, the why people have this curious fascination with aliens, for Pete's sakes. We'll believe in anything. And that is what is happening here in Romans. People stop worshiping God, and so they begin to worship what? Created things. And it's not just birds and animals and so forth, although you can worship the creation, you can worship nature and so forth, but you can worship money, which is a created thing. You can worship success. You can worship your own reputation. The point is that something supplants the place of God in your life. And when that happens, verse 24, as I said, God says the worst thing that you can ever hear God say to a person Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. He gave them up. It's the language of a prisoner exchange. He gives them up to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. 
And the consequence of that, of God giving us up, handing us over, as it were, is that we start on this downward spiral whereby things go from bad to worse. Just take a look at what happens. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's a description of our culture. Let's be honest. That, that, that's one night of HBO. That's what is being described there. We're going to come back here to this passage in just a second, but if you skip over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, which is another of Paul's letters, um, Paul says something very similar. You've heard this passage before, but I think it's, it's just, to me, it is extraordinary that Paul wrote these words in the first century. But they could be a description of America in the 21st century. Now, Paul's writing to his young friend Timothy, who, as you know, was his protege. At the time that Paul wrote this letter, he was in prison in Rome awaiting trial and possible execution. Um, many people consider this to be Paul's last will and testament. So Paul was going to be executed, and he knew that somebody had to carry on the work in the church, and so he is basically passing the baton on to his young friend Timothy to, to carry on his work in the world. But he doesn't want Timothy to have any false ideas about what he's facing. And so here's what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, but understand this, that in the last days, and by the way, when Paul says the last days, he means that whole period of time between the Lord's resurrection and ascension and his returning glory. So we're in the last days. He says, but understand that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self. We take selfies. We have selfie sticks. And we're obsessed with self. I mean, when I was growing up, you had a camera, and the camera had maybe 12 pictures in it. And you took the film to get developed. How many pictures are on your cell phone right now? Thousands upon thousands upon thousands. And how many of them are of you? Don't answer that. I don't want to know. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Tell me that's not a description of exactly where we are today. 
And Paul wrote those words 2,000 years ago. Well, it's the consequence of the fact that we have suppressed the truth about God and he has handed us over and we started on this downward spiral and you know you've reached the bottom of the spiral when? Romans chapter 1, verses 31 and 32, when you are calling evil good and good evil. As you know, when you've reached the bottom, you are calling what God calls evil. We are applauding and practicing. There is a reason why the gay movement is called pride. So you know you have reached the bottom of the spiral when all of a the sudden there is no sense of morality. Truth is relative. Each man, each woman doing what is right in his own eyes, and there is chaos in the world. Now that's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. And he says, when we do this, what we have in essence done is we have declared war on God. God is on the throne. God is the sovereign king of the universe, and we have basically kicked him off the throne and placed ourselves on the throne, and now we're going to make the rules. And as I said, that is treason. Treason to a God who takes seriously the job of being God and is not indifferent to how men and women regard him. But here's the problem with declaring war on God. You can't win. And here's what's also terrible about declaring war on God. Not only can you not win, but when you realize you can't win, and you realize you're under the wrath, the judgment of God, then you say, well, I want to make peace with God. But you have nothing to offer to God. What can you and I possibly, creatures that we are, created from the dust of the earth, what can you and I possibly offer to God that he cannot provide for himself? Nothing. It's not as though God's lonely and he, you know, he wants us. I mean, God lives in dynamic relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they have everything they need. And so we find ourselves in this terrible, wretched situation where we've rebelled against God, suppressed the truth, God's handed us over, we've reached this bottom of the spiral, we are confused, we are lost, we're desperate to make peace with God, but we have nothing to offer to God. That is the human condition according to Romans 1 through 4. And it is why so many people today spend their lives searching for peace, searching for satisfaction, perhaps acquiring huge amounts of money, and yet never finding peace. What can be done? Well, then Paul goes on to add two words, but God. God who is rich in mercy, Paul says, decides to make peace with us. Though he's the injured party, he decides to make peace with us. He knows we cannot make peace with him, so because of his great love for us, he decides to make peace with us. 
Instead of us reaching out to him, God reaches down to us and offers us the opportunity to have a right relationship with him. That is what Paul means by the term righteousness. To be a righteous individual does not mean to be a perfect individual. It means to be one who is in a right relationship with God. And we can't bring ourselves into a right relationship with God, so God brings us into a right relationship with Him. He declares us to be in a right relationship with God. Theologians refer to this as alien righteousness. It's alien because it's outside of ourselves. It's not something that we have intrinsically. It is something that God gives to us. God declares us to be in a right relationship with God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, who becomes, listen to this, who becomes the peace offering. He becomes the peace offering. God Himself pays the price for us to have peace with him. And the price is his very own son. And that is what Romans chapters 5 through 8 is all about. And this gift of salvation, this gift of a right relationship with God, is something that he gives freely. It's a matter of grace. The definition of grace, according to the Bible, is God's undeserved, unearned favor. And that grace, that undeserved gift, is received by faith. What do we have to do to get it, to achieve it, to acquire it? Nothing. You must simply believe that Jesus Christ has done everything necessary to pay the price for your transgressions and to bring you back into a right relationship with God. And that's what Romans chapters 5 through 8 are all about. And it's why Romans chapter 8 ends on such an incredibly high note. Many people have said that chapter 8 is the Mount Everest of Paul's epistle to the Romans. It's the, the high point, the pinnacle. And we love Romans chapter 8. Just look at it, beginning at, oh, let's say verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. He goes on to say, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Verse 26 for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Paul says we don't even know what to pray for sometimes, but God has put his Spirit within us and the Spirit intercedes on our behalf. When we don't know what to pray for, he intercedes with moans and groans too deep for us to utter. And then he goes this and says this in verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things will work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. 
And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. You see, it's the work of God from start to finish. It is God who foreknows. It is God who predestines. It is God who conforms. It is God who calls. God who justifies. God who glorifies. And because it is the work of God from start to finish, stem to stern, Paul can say, what then shall we say to these things? It's a rhetorical question. If God is for us, who can possibly be against us? And then he goes on to say this, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. See, that's the marvelous message of the gospel. In the first four chapters, Paul diagnoses the problem. And then in chapters 5 through 8, he gives us the cure. And it is the alien righteousness of God given to us by grace in the person of Jesus Christ, received by faith. And when it is, there is nothing. Nothing height, nor depth, angels, nor principalities, things present, things to come, nothing in all of creation. That means even you. Once you come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, doesn't mean you'll never sin again. Martin Luther said, we're simul ustus et peccator, at the same time sinners and yet justified. What it means is that even your own sin will never again separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord because his was a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. And what that means when you get to the end of Romans chapter 8 is that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation, no defeat, and no separation from the love of God. Now that's good news. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And it brings us now to Romans chapter 9. So there's the review, the first eight chapters of Romans. Some of you are thinking, why did it take us so long to do that before? <laughs> because there's a lot there. But now you get to Romans chapter 9. What is Romans chapters 9 through 11 all about? Well, Paul had a brilliant mind, a very logical mind. And he wants us to understand that the gospel is just that. It is good news. That's what the word means. Evangelion, evangelion, it means good news, glad tidings. He wants us to understand that. But he also understands that people have questions. And he's aware of the fact that people are going to raise objections to this gospel of grace. You know, I've sometimes said that I think one of the hardest doctrines for Christians to grasp, really for anybody to grasp, is the doctrine of grace. God's undeserved, unearned favor. Now you might think, no, I think the doctrine of the Trinity is much harder to grasp. I don't think so. You might think, well, the doctrine of the hypostatic union, that, that, that's the one that's hard to grasp. That's the idea that Jesus is both 100% divine and 100% human, fully God and fully man. You say, well, I, I don't understand how that, that, that's the hard one. 
Now, I want to suggest to you that grace, practically speaking, is the hardest one for us to understand. Why? Because we always want to add something to it. We always want to add something to it. Yeah, well, God has saved me because, well, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm better than my neighbor. Or I, 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 I know I'm not perfect, but I've tried to live a good life. And see, the minute we, we add anything to it, no matter what it is, we've robbed God of his glory. We have diminished the notion of grace. Grace is God's undeserved, unearned favor, which means there is nothing, absolutely nothing whatsoever that you and I can add to it. This is one of the reasons why I love the fact that we take communion. Now, I know some people can't do this, and that's why we have standing stations. But it's one of the reasons why I love the fact that as Anglicans, we take communion on our knees. Did you ever notice that? Did you ever notice when you come to the altar rail, you kneel and you hold up your palms like a beggar? You're in the posture of a beggar. Because spiritually speaking, that's what we are. We say it right before we come. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. But thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. That's what we are. Spiritually speaking, we are... That's a mic drop right there. We are beggars. We are beggars. And we have nothing to offer. But this is a hard thing for us to accept. And so Paul, in Romans chapters 9 through 11, is anticipating the objections that people are going to bring to this doctrine of grace. And one of the objections that people might possibly raise, that Paul anticipates, is that they're going to say, well, this all sounds wonderful and it all sounds good, and, and you're telling us that God is never going to allow us to be separated from him, no way, no how, but didn't God allow that to happen to the Jews? That's the objection that Paul anticipates to his doctrine that he's just spelled out for us, this wonderful message of salvation. God said that he would save the Jews, that the Jews were his covenant people, that they were his chosen people. But Paul, there aren't many Jews who believe. Paul, look around. The very people who are persecuting you right now as a minister of Jesus Christ are your own people, the Jews. So Paul, if God has not kept his promise to the Jews, how are we can be assured that he's going to keep his promise to us? That's the objection that Paul anticipates. And Romans chapters 9 through 11 is Paul's response to that objection. Okay? Romans chapters 9 through 11, which we are going to take a look at now, are Paul's response to this possible defeater to his argument that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Look at chapter 9, beginning at verse 1 through 6. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. 
For they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Paul catalogs all of the blessings, all of the benefits that the Jewish people have because they are his chosen people. And yet in spite of all of these blessings, all of these benefits, it appears as though the Jewish people in large part, have rejected Christ, have rejected Paul's argument. Indeed, have hated Paul's argument so much, considering it a damnable deceit, a disruption of, of the Jewish faith, that they have tried to kill Paul on occasion. But look at verse 6. And yet Paul says, and yet it is not as though the word of God has failed. See, that's the argument. Paul, the word of God has failed. The promises of God have failed when it came to the Jews. So how are we to know that it won't fail for us? And Paul says, ah, but the promises of God have not failed. In regard to the Jews, the promises of God still stand firm. And what he then goes on to do in the succeeding chapters is to give us seven reasons. Seven reasons why God's promise to the Jews has not failed. And it'll probably take us about three years to get through those, but let me just go ahead right now and sort of map them out for you. So you have a sense, and as we're working our way through, again, so that you don't lose the train of Paul's thought, you're able to go back and look at this outline and see what Paul is really trying to do here. So his seven arguments are these. First, Paul says God's promise to the Jews has not failed because those whom God has elected, those whom God has chosen by his sovereignty will be saved. They will be saved. Those whom God has chosen before the foundations of the earth. In other words, those whom God foreknew and predestined and conformed and called and justified, they will be glorified. Now what Paul is doing there is he is basically making a distinction, listen to this, between national Israel and spiritual Israel. Israel. All right. Paul makes a distinction between national Israel and spiritual Israel. Now, lest we think that this is an invention of the Apostle Paul, it's worth noting that Paul got this from Jesus. We're going to take a look at just a few passages here. Take a look at Matthew chapter 3 for a moment. Matthew chapter 3. Now this is John the Baptist. I referred to this in the sermon this past Sunday. Uh, John the Baptist was out preaching in the Judean wilderness, as you know, near the Jordan River. And many people were coming out to hear him, and they were cut to the quick, and they were repenting and going down into the Jordan River to be baptized as a sign of that repentance. And we're told that the Jewish religious leaders showed up, the scribes and the Pharisees. But when they heard John preaching, 
about repentance, about sin and the need for righteousness, they turned to walk away because they felt, well, we don't need that. We're not sinners. I remember one day saying to a lady, she was an older lady, she was in one of my congregations in years past, and I said to her, you do realize you are a sinner, and she became very indignant, and she said, I am not. I'm a decent woman. And that's exactly how we sometimes feel, isn't it? I am not a sinner. Do not tell me that. It's all right for me to sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me, but you better not call me a wretch. I became very indignant. Well, that's the way it was for the scribes and the Pharisees. And they decided that they were going to turn and walk away. But we're told that when John the Baptist saw them, he cried out to them, he said, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to raise up from the stones children for Abraham. In other words, just don't assume that you're a child of Abraham, because God is capable of raising up from the stones children for Abraham. Just because you are born a Jew doesn't automatically mean that you are a child of Abraham, spiritually speaking. Take a look at John chapter 1. It's the very beginning of John's gospel. And in John chapter 1, verses 11 and following, we read these words. He came to that which was his own. But his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave what? The right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now that prologue to John's gospel is reminding us that becoming a child of God and therefore an heir of the covenant is not a matter of place, it's a matter of grace. It's about adoption. Now turn to John chapter 8 for a moment. Verses 39 and following. Jesus had an argument with the scribes and the Pharisees, and the scribes and the Pharisees were criticizing him. And Jesus was explaining to them that they were actually slaves to sin. That is the human condition. That's what Paul is talking about in those opening chapters, were slaves to sin. And they took offense at that, in the same way that that older woman took offense when I said that she was a sinner. They took offense at the fact that Jesus was saying that they were slaves. They answered him, verse 39, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. And I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Jesus goes on to tell them that what they really are are not children of God or children of Abraham, but rather children of the devil. 
So you can see, Paul says, that right here in the Gospels with Jesus, he makes it clear that we are not automatically the children of Abraham simply because we're born into a family line. The true children of Abraham are the spiritual descendants of Abraham who believe the promise of God in Christ Jesus. And he'll go on to explain that that's what Abraham did. God made a promise to Abraham, even though Abraham was as good as dead and Sarah was well beyond childbearing age, and Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Credited to him as righteousness. Now, Paul sums this up in Galatians chapter 3. The argument that he's going to make here in Romans is put very succinctly in Galatians chapter 3. So you can turn to Galatians chapter 3 for just a second. And you'll see the argument that he is making. Who are children by faith in the promise. By faith in the promise, not just by blood. So Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you all the nations will be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So that's Paul's first argument to the objection that God's promise to the Jews has failed. Actually, Paul says that's not true. Because the true sons and daughters are Abraham are not the sons and daughters by blood, but rather by faith. That's his first argument. Here's the second argument. God had previously revealed in the Old Testament that not all Israel would be saved, but that some Gentiles would. That's the argument he's making in Romans chapters 9, verses 25 through 29. And what he does is he refers in the Old Testament to what is known as a remnant, a faithful remnant. You can read about that in Isaiah chapter 10 and Hosea chapter 2. But there were times in the history of Israel, think about the time when they were brought out into the wilderness and Moses went up onto the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments and he comes down off the mountain and what are the people doing? Worshiping the golden calf. Now, what was ironic about that was the very first commandment stated, you shall have no other gods before me. So before they even get the commandments, they've already broken the first one. They've already broken the first one. So what Paul says is if you look in the Old Testament, you'll notice that it was always the case that most of the people didn't believe, but there was always a remnant. And so when Paul says that God's promise to the Jews has not failed. What that means, he says, is that there will always be a remnant among God's ancient people who, even though they are the minority, nevertheless believe. Nevertheless believe. Here's the third argument that he gives in response to the idea that God's promise to the Jews has failed. And that is, he says, the failure of the Jews to believe is not God's fault. It's their own fault. It's not as though God has made them to not believe. It is that they have turned their backs on God. He said salvation has always been by grace 
through faith. Abraham was reckoned righteousness, or reckoned righteous, because he believed God. He said the Jews have rejected God's message of salvation because, again, they want to add something to the doctrine of grace. They want to do it the old-fashioned way. Do you remember that old commercial? They wanted to do it the old-fashioned way. They wanted to earn it. They wanted to earn it. And Paul says that the message of salvation has never been by works. It has always been by grace. That was the case with Abraham. Abraham was reckoned righteous in God's eyes because he believed God, not because of anything that he had done. And Paul's whole argument is that those who are the children of Abraham are reckoned righteous in God's eyes, not by virtue of anything they have done, but because they too have believed the promise of God. Here's his fourth argument. And again, we're going to flesh all of these out as we go through these chapters. The fourth argument is this. God's promise to Israel has not failed because, Paul says, some Jews have believed. Indeed, Paul says, I'm the foremost example. Paul says, I'm a Jew, and I believe in Jesus Christ. And indeed, in those early days, this was particularly true. All 12 of the disciples were Jews. You do realize that, don't you? There's no place for anti-Semitism, particularly in the life of the church. All of the early disciples were Jews. Those huge flocks of people that followed Jesus in Galilee, sometimes numbering in excess of 5,000, those people were Jews. So Paul says it's not as though God's promise to Israel has failed because there are Jews who do believe. Now, they may be in the minority by comparison to the vast population. He said, but that doesn't mean that Jews have rejected God because some have not. And that is true even in our own day. There are large numbers of Jews. We refer to them sometimes as Messianic Jews or completed Jews, whatever it may be. But they are Jews who have embraced Jesus Christ as the Messiah. So Paul's argument is that God's promise has not failed because some have believed, indeed, I am an example. Here's his fifth argument. It has always been the case that only a remnant would be saved. It's not just an historical fact that there's only been a remnant. It's also been the case all along that only a remnant would be saved. And the example that Paul uses here is a familiar example from the Old Testament. It's from the days of the prophet Elijah. Now, you probably remember the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. Some of you have been to the Holy Land have actually been to Mount Carmel. Uh, what happened on that occasion was there was a great deal of corruption in Israel at this point. Uh, they were worshiping all kinds of false gods. The king was a man by the name of Ahab, but he was really just a puppet. The real power behind the throne, as we know is always the case, was his wife, Jezebel. Jezebel. Her name's come down to us as a byword. But Ahab and Jezebel. And Jezebel was a devotee of the Baals. They worshipped Baal and these other gods. And Elijah was called to preach to the people about repentance and returning to God. And finally he decided that what they needed was a showdown on Mount Carmel. And so what they did is they built this great altar... And the priests of Baal were told that they could place a sacrifice on the altar and they were to call out to Baal 
to come down and consume with fire the sacrifice. And the prophets of Baal made their altar and they placed the sacrifice on it and they cried out to Baal and Baal didn't come. And um, at this point, uh, Elijah sort of, he begins to taunt them. He begins to say things like this, you know, there's always one in every crowd. Well, where is Baal? Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe you ought to cry louder. So they begin to shout louder. And he says, maybe he's gone off to the grocery store. You need to shout a little louder. And so they begin to cut themselves and they begin to cry out and so forth and nothing happens. So now it's Elijah's turn. And what Elijah does is he he goes up to the altar and he orders that it be soaked with water. And they pour water on the altar over and over again until it comes down and fills the trench around the altar. It's absolutely soaked. Then he cries out to his God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great God Jehovah, Yahweh. And we're told that God sent down fire and it consumed the sacrifice and was so intense in its heat that it lapped up the water on the altar and all around the trench. And everybody was amazed and repented. And all of a sudden, they struck out against the priests of Baal and chased them down into the valley of Armageddon and slaughtered them there. And it was a great victory for Elijah, the prophet of God. But no good deed goes unpunished. Queen Jezebel heard about this, and she ordered that Elijah be killed. And he flees. He flees. And the next time you see him, he's hiding out in a cave, cowering, basically sucking his thumb and complaining to the Lord, look what I've done for you. I went out there and I confronted these priests of Baal, and now here I am, stuck in this cave, pursued like a hunted man. I am the only one left. And you know the story, God passed before him. Great earthquake came, a great whirlwind came, and then a still, small voice. You know, it's important to remember that when the earthquakes come in your life, when the typhoons, the hurricanes, the whirlwinds come in your life, that's not where God is to be found. God is found in the still, small voice. And God spoke to Elijah, and he said, you're not the only one left. There are 7,000 in Israel that have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. Paul says that's the way it is today. There is still a remnant. There may not be many, but there are still some there. You need not think that you're the only one left. When I was graduating from seminary, the Archbishop of Canterbury, George Carey, came to address the student body and somebody asked him what I call a typical American question. They said, if you have one bit of advice that you would give to young men and women as they're heading off into the ministry field, what would it be? And he said two things. He said, I'll give you a bonus. He said, one is let your ministry be grounded in your humanity. And the second thing he said is this, just remember wherever you go, there were Christians before you got there. Your job is to make sure there are Christians when you leave. A faithful remnant. Paul says God's promise to Israel has not 
faltered because there is a remnant and there always will be. Sixth argument is this, and this is in many ways Paul at the top of his game. This is Paul pulling back the curtain and allowing us to get a picture of what God is actually doing in history. He says, actually, all of this, the rejection on the part of the Jews and the inclusion of the Gentiles is actually part of God's master plan. It's true. God has sent the message of salvation first to the Jews, and the Jews have rejected it. But while they have rejected him, God has not rejected them. And actually what God has done is he has allowed the Gentiles to come in and believe. But what the inclusion of the Gentiles is going to do is it's going to provoke God's people, his ancient people, the Jews, to jealousy. And they are going to, when they see the benefits that the Gentiles have received, that peace with God, which leads to the peace of God, when they recognize that, they will themselves be provoked to jealousy and they will say to themselves, I don't know what it is that those people have, but whatever it is, I want it. And then the opportunity to preach the gospel to them will be made and they will return. There's a great picture of this, I think, uh, just a, a miniature picture of this in the book of Acts. Uh, turn to Acts for just a minute. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, chapter 2. It's this great picture of the church in those early days. And it's, I love it because of what it says. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 42. This is a, a picture of the early church, those early days, right after Pentecost. Or actually, yeah. Right after Pentecost. Chapter 2, verse 42, we're told, The early church devoted themselves, the people, to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So here's the picture. They're just... A few people, they're poor people, they don't have much, but they're worshiping the Lord, they're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, that is to the word, to the breaking of bread, that is to say they're gathering for worship, that's always a, a, a reference to Holy Communion, to the breaking of bread, to the prayers, and what does it say? They had everything in common. In other words, they recognized that if anybody out there was in need, they weren't concerned with their own stuff. They were willing to help out their brothers and sisters in need. Now, you understand that in the first century, there were no charitable organizations. None. If you were poor, you died. If you were deformed, you were put on the street to die. The government did not take care of you. There was no social security. There were no agencies. It always strikes me as astonishing that young people today believe that the government is supposed to take care of them. Good luck with that. But there were no agencies in the first century. But here were these people, these people who cared for each other, who loved each other, who gave of their own wealth for the well-being of another. They didn't consider 
themselves to own anything. Now, somebody said this is the first example of communism. No, it's not. You know why? Because communism is a forced sharing. This was voluntary. This is something totally different. And they gave, and look at verse 44. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The church grew exponentially. And according to what we read here, they weren't doing any kind of what we would call evangelism at this point. They weren't targeting unreached people groups. They were simply caring for each other. And the outside world, which was so cold and unfeeling, looked at these people and said, I don't know what they have, but by golly, I want some of it. I want to be a part of that. And they came to the church and said, what is it that you have that we don't? And the apostles and the others were able to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. And day by day, the Lord added to their numbers those who were being saved. They were provoked to jealousy. And Paul says, that's what God is doing with the Gentiles. When the Jews begin to see the blessings that the Gentiles have in Christ, they're going to be provoked to jealousy. And he said, they will come and they say, what is it that you have that we don't have? We have all these benefits. What is it that you have that we don't have? And you'll have the opportunity to preach the gospel. Paul talks about broken branches. He talks about an olive tree. And some of the branches have been broken off and Wild olives have been ingrafted. Those are the Gentiles. He said, but the Gentiles should never boast because if God is capable of ingrafting wild olive branches, what can he do with those that are the natural branches? Here's the seventh argument. God will one day bring a revival among his ancient people. That's what he's saying in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 32. Not every single Jew will be saved, but there will be a time, Paul says, in the last days when God will do a work, an amazing work among his own people. And we will see revival among the Jews. So no, he says, it is not as though the promise of God has failed. In Christ Jesus, all the promises of God are yes. So let me leave you with a question. Where do you fit in? Where do you fit into this grand scheme, this grand plan that God is unfolding in history? Why are you here? What is your purpose? If God has a plan and a purpose for the nations of the earth, brothers and sisters, he has a plan for you. He has a plan for your life as an individual. And that plan is to conform you evermore to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. God's promises never fail. His promises in Christ Jesus are always yes. So in the succeeding weeks and months, what we're going to do is flesh out all of these arguments here in Romans chapters 9 through 11. And we will start next week 
with Paul's anguish for his own people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God of history and you unfold your plans in history. Sometimes it takes a while for us to see your promises come true, but we are assured that they always do, that you never break your word. And that's why we can be confident that there is nothing, neither height nor depth, neither angels nor principalities, neither things present nor things to come, nothing in all of creation that can separate us from your love in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's in his name that we pray and give you praise. Amen. All right. Thank you very much.